Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. And welcome back to Behind the Knife, and today we are lucky enough to have Dr. Andrew Wright. Um, He was on an earlier podcast where we discussed a debate about appendicitis and the treatment of it. Andrew Wright is the Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington, and he's Chief of their Hernia Center. And today he's going to help us uh, through some more mock oral scenarios. It's been a very hot topic as lots of programs are going through mock orals. And today we're lucky enough to have uh, some colleagues of ours from the University of Toronto. Um, They've been very interested in, in helping out, and so we're really excited to have them. And Elliot, if you can introduce yourselves and uh, tell us what your guys' plans are uh, post-residency here. Uh, sure. So uh, my name is Elliot Joachim. I'm a PGY-5 at the University of Toronto, and uh, I will be starting a thoracic fellowship uh, here at UT Toronto General uh, starting in July. My name is Chetan Sati. I'm another chief here. Um, I'm also fifth year. I'll be doing a pediatric surgery fellowship in Chicago next year. Yeah, my name is uh, Ricky Drez. I'm a PGY-5 here. I'm uh, doing a social oncology fellowship in Toronto. starting Well, great. And thank you guys so much for joining us. And uh, Dr. Wright, and uh, thank you again for helping us out today and take it away. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, and I think I heard uh, one of your previous uh, mock oral presenters give the same disclaimer, but I am not an examiner for the Board of Surgery or, or for that matter, for the Canadian Board of Surgery. So uh, so who am I talking to first? Uh, I'll, uh, I'll start us off. So this is Elliot. Great. So uh, you have a patient who presents to clinic um, who's had increasing difficulty swallowing uh, over the past, oh, uh, past year. Okay, <clears throat> so I would begin uh, seeing the patient in the office and uh, doing a uh, complete history and physical. Uh, my uh, history would uh, focus on um, you know, the history, uh, the onset of the difficulty swallowing, um, whether it is, uh, has been progressive to uh, solids and liquids or if it's just to liquids or just to solids, uh, whether there's any associated chest pain. Uh, vomiting, that sort of thing, and I would um, uh, then do a, phys- a focused physical exam focusing on the uh, abdominal and uh, uh, chest. Okay, so this is a, a 37-year-old male. He's had increasing difficulty swallowing, uh, first just noticing it with uh, large bites or, or solids, uh, especially with meat, and uh, but over the last year has been progressing, so he now is having trouble even with some soft foods and occasionally with liquids. Uh, he does have some occasional chest pain, uh, which he describes as being sort of lower in his chest, just above his xiphoid, and um, otherwise been pretty healthy. Uh, really nothing on physical exam. Okay. Uh, and, so, and no other medical uh, history? No other medical history. Um, so I would um, uh, begin the workup for this patient with uh, an upper GI, a, swallow, a barium swallow, uh, as well as arranging a uh, 24-hour pH uh, manometry testing and an upper endoscopy. 
Great. So what are you looking for on the barium swallow? So the barium swallow sort of gives me the gives us a roadmap of uh, uh, of the potential pathologies. Uh, so particularly in this case, I'd be looking for um, you know smooth contours uh, of the barium, um, you know evidence of masses or um, achalasia, like a bird's beak appearance, or um, any evidence of a zenkers, for example, which would be important when I go to scope the patient. Okay. So on the barium swallow, um, you see a, a smooth contoured esophagus that does taper just above the GE junction and then eventually does fill into the uh, stomach. A, uh, a marshmallow or a pill swallow does hang up at that location but does eventually pass through with a second swallow. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, do, uh, do I have the results of my of any other testing, the manometry in particular? Sure. So, uh, what are you looking for in the manometry? How how do you interpret that? Sure. So, um, on the manometry, I'd just be looking for essentially the pattern of con contractility in the esophagus, uh, with uh, attention to um, you know even uh, um, even contraction uh, over time, and then the um, uh, the, the, the pressures in the lower esophageal sphincter, and I'd want to know that the lower esophageal sphincter relaxes appropriately. Um, so that, and that, that would be the main, that would be the main thing I'd be looking for. And okay. then, and the other, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, yeah, so, and I'd, I'd also like to scope the patient. If, uh, sure. If we could. So we'll take take things sort of one thing at a time. So on the manometry, um, there is essentially a peristalsis. Um, you see essentially no propagation of the swallow in the thoracic esophagus, and then um, at the lower esophageal sphincter, the lower esophageal sphincter pressure is normal, but that the uh, there is minimal relaxation. In fact, really no relaxation. Uh, and the IRP is um, uh, elevated. The IRP, sorry, just to clarify, the acronym is the resting pressure? Uh, that's an integrated relaxation pressure. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so um, I, I think what you're describing are, are findings on the manometry that are consistent with achalasia. But I would I would still continue to and complete the workup as I had previously mentioned. Perfect. So a pH test um, actually shows um, a pattern of uh, it has an elevated Demeester score. Um, but when you look at the pattern, there's uh, really not many episodes of reflux, but rather a slowly dwindling uh, pH over multiple hours at night. And the uh, upper endoscopy is fairly normal, except that the lower esophageal sphincter feels a little bit tight to get through, uh, but the scope pops through easily, otherwise normal. Okay. Do you want to, next? Uh, so, I mean, I, again, I think all of the findings here are um, consistent with a patient uh, who has achalasia. Uh, so uh, my next step would be to bring the patient back to the office to discuss the findings of all of the uh, investigations. 
and uh, to discuss uh, further therapy. Right. So what are your treatment options here? So uh, there are surgical and non-surgical options for achalasia. Um, uh, I'll, I'll go through them sequentially. I think, um, you know, there are medical therapy options with calcium channel blockers, which uh, have side effects and are not uh, as good as some of the other options that I'll get to. Um, uh, a further option endoscopically, uh, you can use Botox, uh, which um, is uh, convenient for patients who are at a high operative risk. Um, endoscopic dilation is also an option, but both of them are um, uh, not definitive. Uh, the definitive treatment for this patient uh, would be a Heller myotomy, um, and uh, uh, I would do that laparoscopically, uh, which is what I would offer this patient, uh, given that they are of good operative risk and are fairly young. Um, um, and there are emerging other emerging strategies like POEM, but um, I would not, um, I would not, uh, I would have to refer them if that was something that they were, wanted to explore. Okay. So uh, as you are discussing the possible myotomy with her in clinic, uh, she asks, "What are the possible complications?" Okay. Uh, so uh, I would go over. Um, uh, so I'd contend for laparoscopic myotomy. The risks that I would explain um, are um, uh, particular to the operation and then general. So there's general uh, risks associated with anesthesia, car primarily cardiopulmonary, and then there are uh, risks associated with the operation itself, uh, such as uh, a leak or perforation from the myotomy site, um, uh, bleeding, uh, and there's a small risk of uh, failure of the operation due to inadequate myotomy. Okay. So you take her to the operating room. How do you do that? So uh, uh, have her see the, I would have her see the anesthetist preoperatively for a risk assessment. Um, on the day of the operation, I'd bring her into the operating room, uh, lay her supine on the table, uh, arms tucked uh, in the, with um, uh, arms tucked, um, do a preoperative timeout uh, with administration of antibiotics. Uh, and communication with the anesthesia team. Uh, Preoperatively, uh, I would also instruct her to um, just have clear fluids for about 48 hours, uh, and she may need an NG placed uh, at the time of induction just to reduce the risk of aspiration. Um, uh, once she was asleep, I would prep and drape her abdomen. Uh, I'd enter using a Han technique, uh, insufflate the abdomen, do a diagnostic laparoscopy first. Uh, and then I would place um, my working ports uh, on either side of the uh, the camera port, and I'd place a Nathanson liver retractor to elevate the left uh, lateral uh, segment of the liver. Uh, and I would put her into a steep uh, head head up position, just so that uh, just to use gravity to retract uh, uh, the um, the uh, small bowel out of the way. Uh, and then, um, do you want me to go into the the steps? Okay, so um, so I'd start by um, uh, mobilizing the G junction to so try and find the right cruise. Uh, uh, enter uh, e entering the lesser sac through the bare uh, the, the bare area of the gastropathic ligament. Um, find the right cruise. Uh, dissect over top of the GE junction. Uh, dissecting the gastroesophageal fat pad, taking care to preserve the hepatic branch of the vagus. Um, uh, once I had done that, I carried my dissection around uh, to the, uh, the left cruise, um, mobilized the, the, the fundus of the stomach using an energy device, if that was available to me, to ligate the short gastrics. Uh, 
and then um, and then um, I'd have to make an assessment whether there was any component of a parasophageal hernia or not. If there was, it would just deliver the GE junction back down into the abdomen. Um, if there was not, then I would use the hook cautery to uh, start my myotomy on the anterior surface of the distal esophagus, and I would uh, just take care to incise the longitudinal and circular fibers of the esophagus without perforating the mucosa, and then I would carry my dissection up uh, six centimeters onto the uh, onto the esophagus and two centimeters down onto the uh, stomach side. Um, I would do an intraoperative endoscopy to assess the location of the GE junction to make sure that my gastric myotomy was adequate. Um, and once I was happy with that, I would then um, just do a, a leak test with the scope in um, uh, to, um, uh, just to make sure that I hadn't perforated any of the mucosal areas. Uh, if I had not, then I would perform a, um, a toupee fundoplication. Uh, to complete the operation, so I would take the fundus, uh, deliver it around uh, the posterior side of the um, uh, posterior side of the GE junction, and suture it to either edge of my myotomy for a 270 degree posterior wrap. All right. Um, so that's it for this question. So how do you think you did? Um, a little, little shaky at the, at the beginning, but. Uh, I think we got it got it back yeah no I, I actually thought you did a very nice job with this one um it was there's not a lot of diagnostic quandary as long as you know what achalasia is but uh you did a nice progression through um uh, there are a couple of minor notes that i i don't think would ding you very hard but um on uh, interpretation of, of manometry, there's now the Chicago classification, and so achalasia is no longer defined as the amount of relaxation, but they actually just look at this uh, uh, relax integral relaxation pressure. But that's a pretty minor thing. I don't think anyone would really hassle you too much about. Okay. Uh, and then the only other thing is in your sepsi operation, um, you I think you left out. Generally speaking, you have to mobilize the vagus. Um, up off the esophagus before you're doing your myotomy. I see. Um, but other than that, I thought that was uh, very well done. Okay. Thank you. And just for our other listeners out there, uh, we did not give them a heads up on any of these cases. Um, and so this is all um, from their knowledge. Yeah, it, I think it helped that uh, Elliot's going into thoracic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Okay. Uh, this is this who's, then who's I'll next? next. That this is Chapin. Great. So um, you have a forty-year-old um, woman who presents to the emergency department with uh, some right upper quadrant pain and uh, low-grade fever. Okay, so my first approach for this patient is I would assess her ABCs, uh, make sure that she's vitally stable, uh, insert an IV and run some fluids as needed. Uh, I would want uh, quite a bit more in history, so I'd want to know what the duration of her right upper quadrant pain is. Has she had any jaundice, any change to her stools? Has she had any other significant past medical history? Uh, and in addition to uh, an extensive history, I would also want to proceed with a physical exam, focusing on her abdomen. 
Okay. So, um, otherwise reasonably healthy um, woman in her 40s up till this date. Uh, she's had a couple of days of feeling sort of queasy and some mild uh, right upper quadrant tenderness, but uh, acutely worsened over the last probably four or five hours before presentation. Um, she has not had any um, uh, jaundice that she has noted. Okay. Uh, and I can't remember what other questions did you have? And with, sorry, with respect to her past medical history, mm -hmm. you, you said she's otherwise quite healthy, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I would proceed as well just with a physical exam, focused physical exam uh, of the abdomen. Okay. So, uh, physical exam of the abdomen, she has um, uh, no distension. Her skin looks normal. Um, she has normal bowel sounds. She does have tenderness in her right upper quadrant to palpation and a positive Murphy sign. Okay. All right, so at this point, you know, my suspicion for something such as acute cholecystitis would be very high. Uh, I would proceed with uh, sending off blood work, so CBC, creatinine, light, and some liver function tests, and I would also want to get an ultrasound. Okay. So um, her CBC shows a mildly elevated white blood cell count at 12, um, but otherwise normal. Her chemistry panel is normal. Her LFTs show a very slightly elevated ALT, a normal AST, uh, normal Billy, uh, and uh, normal Alkvoss. Oh, and ultrasound uh, shows a, a mildly distended gallbladder with a fair number of smallish stones. And uh, she does seem to have a slightly dilated uh, common duct at uh, 10 millimeters for her, um, but not. Uh, but they can't see very well uh, more distally than that. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, you know, at this point, I would speak to the patient about um, the fact that here's a have acute cholecystitis and may have some, you know, is intermediate risk for some stones in her common bowel duct. Um, I would ensure that the patient is on antibiotics, and I would speak with her about the fact that we have two options. You know, we could either do a, a MRCP to really evaluate her ducts, or do a laparoscopic cholecystectomy with a intraoperative cholangiogram. Uh, I would favor the latter, given that she has uh, fever, white count, and some inflammation of the gallbladder. So, uh, my plan with her would be to take her for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy and an intraoperative cholangiogram. Okay. So uh, she is pretty miserable and uncomfortable, so she agrees to surgery. Um, you take her to the operating room, and what do you do? So in the operating room, I would, uh, you know, perform my preoperative checklist. I would ensure that she gets preoperative antibiotics, um, ensure that consent is on the chart. I would notify anesthesia and the patient that we're all on the same page about doing a laparoscopic colostectomy. Uh, once the patient is asleep, I would a, uh, proceed with first a open uh, Hassan technique to enter the abdomen and achieve pneumoperineum. I would then insert an additional 10-millimeter uh, trocar into the epigastric area and then two 5-millimeter uh, trocars under the right subcostal space. Um, I would then use the lateralmost uh, retractor to <clears throat> uh, lift the fundus of the gallbladder towards the right hemidiaphragm. This would then, you know, uh, hopefully expose uh, Callot's triangle, uh, the, the, the cystic triangle itself, and then allow me to start with my operation.
So I would start by uh, using my L-hook cautery to uh, <clears throat> incise the peritoneum, both uh, uh, anteriorly and posteriorly over the cystic triangle. Uh, doing this, I would want to achieve my critical view where I separate the uh, gallbladder from the cystic plate and I'm able to just see two structures, the cystic duct and the cystic artery between uh, my field of dissection and the liver bed. Um, after I've done this, I would then proceed to, um, <clears throat> before I take the artery, I would actually at this time want to do my intraoperative cholangiogram. So I would, um, what I would do is I would clip the cystic duct very close to the gallbladder first. Um, I would then make a cholidocotomy, or sorry, a, a hole in the cystic duct. Uh, through this, I would then feed in a um, small cholangiocatheter into this hole, and I would secure it in place with a loosely placed clip. Um, preoperatively, I would have also wanted to make sure this patient was on a fluoroscopy-enabled table so that we can do our intraoperative cholangiogram. And um, I would then proceed to shoot contrast uh, through this catheter and achieve my uh, cholangiogram and have a look and see if there's any stones in the common bile duct. Okay. So what do you, uh, when you're reading your cholangiogram, uh, what in particular are you looking for? So at this time, I'm looking for filling defects. I'm looking for the size of the common bile duct. I'm looking for flow of contrast into the duodenum. And I'm looking for both the intra and ex extrahepatic duct. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Making sure I can see secondary biliary uh, branches. So you, uh, you shoot your cholangiogram, and it does appear that you're in a uh, cystic duct. The ductal anatomy looks fairly normal, and you do see filling back up into the retrograde into the um, uh, liver. Uh, looking uh, uh, distally, you do see what appears to be several small stones in the uh, common duct, one of which is... Uh, and you have very minimal flow of contrast, uh, just a wisp uh, going through the sphincter into the duodenum. Okay. And, and uh, sorry, just to clarify, how, how small are the stones? Uh, ranging from you know, three to four millimeters. Okay. So my first move uh, here would be to attempt through the catheter to flush with saline and give some glucagon to see if this helps um, uh, relax the sphincter vodi and release some of these small stones. As my first maneuver. So it, it's, uh, it looks like you're still unable to uh, get much to go through. You can see that there it looks like there's a stone impacted at the sphincter. Um, you have a couple others above that that are sort of floating around. Okay. Um, in, in, in my hands, um, at, at this time, I would um, See if, if I have availability for a cholidocoscope um, to see if I can put that through. I would also make sure at this time that I would call an HPB senior colleague to get their uh, his or her opinion as well uh, to see if that is a possibility. Okay. Uh, they do have a, a, a cholidocoscope available. Um, and your HPB surgeon is uh, available to talk to you by phone but can't come in. Okay, so uh, if the cholidocoscope is available, I would proceed to place this um, uh, into the uh, hole that I've made in the cystic duct. 
and to see if I'm able to visualize and, and actually push these stones through. And uh, so as you come down with the Colodocoscope, you basically see a few stones in front of you, um, but you can't really push them forward. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I, I, at this point, I would be thinking after speaking with my HVB colleague that, you know, there's, there's uh, two options. I, uh, we could either, in my hands, I would either convert uh, to an open common bowel duct exploration, or I think this patient would be perfectly amenable to um, just completion of the cholecystectomy and a post-operative ERCP, especially given that uh, she's not overtly cholangitic at this time and has very small stones in the duct. All right, so you complete the uh, ERC, or you complete the uh, cholecystectomy, and uh, that goes well, and you set up for ERCP the next day. Uh, is that something you do yourself or something you would have uh, your colleagues do? That, that's something I would uh, contact my GI colleagues to do. So they do their ERCP, and they're able to do their uh, sphincterotomy uh, and extract the stones. Um, the patient uh, initially does well, but several hours later starts having increasing abdominal pain. <clears throat> okay. Um, <clears throat> so at this time, you know, I would, again, reassess the patient, reassess the ABCs, make sure that the vitals are stable. Um, my concerns with pain at this point would be, um, uh, especially, you know, given the fact that this is right after the ERCP would be something such as post-ERCP pancreatitis or even a retropancreatic, um, a perforation of the, uh, retroperineal duodenum. So I would start by sending off some blood work, including amylase and lipase and liver function tests once again. Um, and I would also order a CT scan of the abdomen. Um, I would also have a high suspicion for a bleed as well, so I would want to check the CBC. Okay. So your white blood cell count is still mildly elevated. Uh, your liver function tests are all actually now normal, and amylase and lipase are normal. On CT, she does have some uh, specks of air in the retroperitoneum around the duodenum. Uh, CBC is normal. And uh, something specifically I would be asking for on the CT would be to administer oral contrast just to see if this is a, a contained perforation. Uh, there's no uh, extravasation of contrast. Okay. So I would um, initially manage this patient non-operatively. I would uh, ensure that she's on broad-spectrum antibiotics, bowel rest, and uh, give her some uh, parenteral nutrition. And, see, and monitor very closely to see if she improves. All right, so that's it for that one. Um, how do you think you did? Um, I think it went okay. I, I think um, I need to be more comfortable just with the uh, intraoperative IOC description, uh, a little bit more, you know, practice with that. Uh, but I think the rest went okay. Yeah, I think that was perfect. I think there were a couple of... Um, I actually gave you the post-operative uh, or post-ERCP problem, actually, because you were doing pretty well. So I just wanted to give you something a little bit more challenging, and you handled that as well. Um, I think that the important things there that you did is you described the critical view very well. 
Um, I think that there are a lot of people um, who have some misconceptions about the critical view. So that's always something that I check for is to make sure you really understand what that is. I think the other important thing is on your IOC, you did describe looking not just for the stone distally, but to make sure that you had the proximal filling of the biliary radicals, which uh, is an important safety check as well. So I thought that went fine. I think that uh, for the listeners of the podcast, um, uh, there are some other branch point options. So you certainly could have chosen uh, not to do the uh, cholidocoscope if that's something you weren't familiar with and just go straight to ERCP. Um, but I think that since you were able to describe using the cholidocoscope uh, and, and felt comfortable with it, perfectly fine to, to uh, review that in your answer. I, I think as a, a global thing of advice for the listeners to the podcast, um, one way to get yourself into trouble is to start describing doing something that you don't actually know how to do. So, absolutely, that's great advice. That's a good. So, so, so do you feel that um, uh, the branch points? Uh, so, it wouldn't have been wrong to go with an open uh, conversion to an open common object exploration at that point. Um, that is certainly, you know, in the literature and, and sort of old school. Um, I don't think there are many people that would do that anymore. Um, uh, there are a few people that would do a laparoscopic common duct exploration, but if you're going to present that on the oral boards, you've got to be really comfortable with that. Um, okay. that's something that really, I think an HPB trained person these days or, or an advanced MIS person. Um, not something I would expect from, from sort of general surgery level. Okay. Uh, the other branch point, and I actually, uh, I presented this patient as fairly mild cholidocolithiasis. So I think your decision to go to the operating room, uh, for lap coli was perfectly appropriate. If she'd had more severe disease like cholangitis, then you could have talked about whether or not to do an ERCP first. Okay. Who's next? Is uh, Ricky. All right. So uh, you are on call for the emergency department and get a phone call uh, about a patient who is presenting with severe epigastric and uh, lower chest pain uh, after an episode of vomiting. Okay, uh, so uh, first thing I do is go to the emergency department to assess the patient, uh, perform a uh, focus history and physical exam. Uh, I'd also, uh, before I do that, ascertain the vitals of the patient, uh, start a large bore IV, and start to run some crystalloid through this. Uh, for my uh, history, I would ask him if this is the first episode that this happened, uh, whether or not there's um, large amounts of hematemesis uh, coming with it. Uh, I would ask about uh, more about the pain, where, uh, where it's located, where it's radiating to. Um, uh, and I would ask also about his past medical history, whether or not he's a smoker, uh, whether or not he's a drinker, and has any, any other previous uh, upper GI uh, symptoms. Um, I would uh, then move on to a physical exam, focusing on the abdomen, uh, palpate all four quadrants for any masses, uh, tenderness, uh, or peritonitis. So uh, this is a gentleman in his 40s. He is homeless. Uh, he is, uh, uh, says that he otherwise has uh, very minimal past medical history. 
Uh, he had been drinking and had a, an episode of uh, several bouts of retching and vomiting immediately prior to the pain starting. He had no hematemesis. Um, he is, um, let's see, what other questions did you have on his history? Uh, any other previous upper GI uh, symptoms? Oh, uh, he's never had any um, episode exactly like this, um, but he does have, uh, uh, he does vomit frequently um, uh, during his drinking episodes. Um, next, I would move on to uh, get some blood work for this patient. I would get a BBC electrolytes, uh, LFT, um, kind of creatinine on him. Uh, and uh, after this, uh, my differential, I'm thinking about either uh, Mallory Weiss, uh, Borhaves, or possible peptic ulcer disease, um, uh, or other upper right upper quadrant uh, biliary pathology. Uh, I would uh, begin my investigation um, uh, with a CT. Uh, chest with uh, contrast uh, and oral contrast as well. Uh, chest and abdomen, sorry. Um, so you had uh, earlier asked um, uh, for vitals. He is mildly tachycardic uh, at the one teens level. Um, his blood pressure is, um, uh, however, uh, okay. He. Um, uh, on examination, uh, he it looks uh, disheveled. He looks a little bit on the ill side, but it's hard to tell if that's his baseline. Um, and he has a normal heart sound, normal lung sounds, and he has some mild tenderness to deep palpation in the epigastrium. Uh, he has no rebound or guarding. Uh, so on his chemistry panel, his white count is elevated at 15. Uh, the remainder of his chemistries are okay. And, uh, I'm sorry, you said you wanted a CT? Yeah, CT, uh, abdo-pelvis, um, with, uh, triple contrast. So on CT, he has, uh, free, uh, a pocket of air, uh, just below the diaphragm. Uh, he has no extravasation of contrast. All right, so uh, based off those CT descriptions, this um, appears to be a contained uh, perforation, uh, likely at the distal esophagus. Uh, I would start uh, by continuing to resuscitate this patient with fluids and uh, antibiotics um, and reassess him uh, over a short interval in about an hour. If uh, his vital signs remain stable and he seems to be making improvement, I'll continue my uh, course of uh, um, conservative management. Um, if not, uh, we, we move on to more aggressive management, uh, such as an offer of intervention. Okay, so he is um, initially um, uh, stays about the same, continues to be mildly tachycardic, but no softening in his blood pressure. Uh, but over the next few hours, he has increasing pain uh, and he becomes increasingly tachycardic uh, now to the 130s. Okay, so uh, this would, um, uh, to me, be a failure of uh, conservative uh, management. I would um, uh, take this pa a consensus patient for an exploratory uh, laparotomy uh, in my hands and, um, uh, and take him to the OR. 
Okay. So uh, you're in your oper operating room. What do you do? Wait. Uh, so I would start by uh, making a uh, upper midline laparotomy. Um, I would uh, inspect the asthma at this point for any presence of blood or bile. Um, high suspicion is that of a perforation near the GE junction. Uh, so I would uh, place um, an omni retractor within the abdomen to get a good view of the uh, um, uh, upper upper area of the abdomen and uh, inspect uh, the GE junction and the upper aspect of the stomach first. Okay. So you take him to the operating room. Uh, you get your retractors in. You don't see any free spillage. Uh, into the abdomen, but after you get your retractor under the uh, liver and lift it up, uh, you do get some murky fluid up by the GE junction. Um, and you're having a hard time uh, visualizing uh, uh, very well up in that area. Things are, fair, things are fairly inflamed, and, um, but you can't see an actual perforation. Uh, so at this point, I would uh, irrigate with uh, one liter of warm saline to see if I can get any better, better visual, visualization, to see if I can identify a, um, a point of perforation. Uh, from what you're describing, I think you can be quite stuck and murky uh, up in the GE junction, um, uh, in which case uh, I would place um, uh, three or four drains in the right upper quadrant uh, widely. Um, I would also uh, uh, place a drain up posteriorly uh, uh, getting access to the lesser sac to make sure that I, I can't, the perforation is not uh, posterior as well. Um, after that, I would place a, uh, a feeding uh, jejunostomy tube uh, and bring that out in the abdomen. Uh, and uh, I would consult my ICU colleagues and transfer this patient to a monitored setting. Okay. Um, so as you're working through uh, getting the drains in, uh, you do eventually actually see what looks to be a small uh, tear, uh, a linear tear uh, in the distal esophagus just above the angle of his. Do you, does that change your management at all? Uh, yes, for sure. So um, if uh, I do see a small tear, I would assess the, um, uh, the quality of the tissue. Uh, in the esophagus, uh, whether or not uh, it's uh, too inflamed to be able to hold a stitch. If I think that it can hold a stitch, I would um, uh, primarily repair uh, this uh, perforation uh, using interrupted uh, braided sutures, uh, and I would also throw on a uh, omental patch um, uh, over my repair at this point. Okay, so you take the patient uh, back to the ICU. And over the next couple of days, he is uh, stabilizing. He is no longer tachycardic. Uh, at, what, uh, at what point uh, do you think about letting him eat? Um, I would, uh, I mean, I would have to perform a swallow study first, and I wouldn't be uh, do this. I would uh, actually support him uh, uh, via enteral nutrition by my uh, J-tube. Uh, for uh, approximately seven to ten days, uh, after which I would do uh, a swallow test uh, um, uh, through a CT esophagram. Uh, and if there's no leak at that point, I would start him on some fluids. Okay, so you get your uh, esophagram. 
And uh, you do see that there's actually a contained uh, perforation. So there is some leak of contrast, uh, but into a contained pocket about two centimeters uh, by two centimeters. Okay. Uh, if the patient is stable at this point, um, I would uh, first start off with a course of uh, conservative management. I already have had drains within the abdomen, uh, and um, I'll see if he if this leak persists over observing him for uh, probably another week or so. Um, if uh, some other options that we can uh, uh, that we have for this patient, if the leak persists, is uh, possible uh, an IR guided drain. If my current drains don't um, uh, aren't able to drain this collection. Uh, or possibility of placing an endoscopic stent uh, across this leak. Okay. And uh, as far as if you uh, decide to place a stent, um, do you do that yourself, or is that something that you uh, refer out? I would refer that to one of my uh, gastroenterology colleagues to do. Okay. Good. So um, I thought you did that fairly well. Um, there are a couple of things that uh, I think are important uh, minor things, but that end up being a little bit important overall is, um, uh, and, and this is sort of advice for the, the podcast listeners as well. Um, I was nice to you because I went back and I told you the physical exam findings and the, that he was tachycardic. Um, it is something you had asked for, but you had a tendency to sort of jump ahead to the next thing without waiting for the answers for, for the first bit, if that makes sense. Um, and that could get you into trouble. If you had a mean examiner, they could not go back and fill in those pieces, and then that could come back to haunt you later. So feel free to wait or to ask again for things, um, because the examiner is not necessarily going to give them to you. Okay. Uh, uh, I thought your management of the uh, the perforation was just fine. Um, it's a little bit less common to have a, a below-the-diaphragm perforation, certainly um, more common in Borhavs for it to be above the diaphragm, but it certainly can happen, uh, and I think that was a reasonable approach. Um, I think you certainly could. So there are folks who would say to approach that laparoscopically, but not at all wrong, and I think the way you put it is in your hands, you would do it open. I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, I think it was very important that you placed a J-tube. That was, I think, a critical thing uh, that was good. Um, the only other thing is that uh, I did present to you this gentleman who's an alcoholic, and and um, uh, but you definitely, and you know, you think Borjas, but you also need to make sure that you rule out, uh, uh, for example, perforation due to malignancy. Um, the, uh, that's not something you necessarily need to deal with on an acute setting, but um, but that's something that you should mention in your differential as something that has to be dealt with later. I don't think any of those are are things that would, uh, those are just all minor points, but but uh, but certainly you want to keep in the back of your mind. The other thing with the alcoholism is you want to make sure as you're in your critical care management that you also manage potential withdrawal uh, and nutritional issues from that. Okay. Thank you. All right. We're on to our last, uh, last scenario here. And, uh, I think we might have to retitle this podcast, uh, 
how to dominate uh, mock orals. The you know these guys are all doing really well. I'm I'm <laughs> trying to make some, uh, and and that's why I've given some complications on both of the, <laughs> the last two. Quite an upgrade from the behind the knife uh, staff undergoing mock orals. So uh, thanks guys for doing such a great job. Well, it's probably good because these guys are taking their oral boards in just a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> exactly. They're well, so yeah. one one would hope. <laughs> Yeah, not wholly unprepared. We have been studying a little bit. <laughs> the um, Canadian oral boards are coming up on uh, June 15th, so they're just uh, like three weeks away from, oh, three, four weeks away from taking their, their orals. So, All right, so do we have time for one more? I do. Yeah, if you, yeah. Yeah, if you, uh, you got one, let's do it. Sure. So a... Um, a 62-year-old uh, gentleman is referred to your clinic uh, for uh, by your gastroenterologist for refractory uh, peptic ulcer. Uh, the patient has had an ulcer now for uh, about six months despite uh, PPI treatment. Okay. Uh, so I would uh, see the patient and do a complete history and physical uh, in the clinic uh, with particular attention to uh, any symptoms that he may be having, uh, the onset of symptoms. Uh, I'd want to contact a gastroenterologist who had done uh, these previous uh, endoscopies to understand, uh, to, have, uh, to understand the findings and the characteristics of the ulcer. Um, my history would focus uh, also on any previous medical problems that the patient has had uh, and any history of uh, family history of cancer. Okay. So the patient initially began having symptoms with uh, epigastric pain and dyspepsia. Um, he's had that off and on actually for many years, um, but finally presented uh, about a year ago, as I said, to his gastroenterologist. Um, on endoscopy at the initial uh, presentation, he had a prepyloric ulcer that was about two centimeters, fairly shallow, uh, with no stigmata of bleeding. Um, he was treated with PPIs and repeat endoscopy um, at three months showed uh, essentially no healing. Uh, he currently is actually having uh, his persistent epigastric discomfort, but he's also now beginning to have some uh, feelings of early satiety. Okay. <clears throat> so um, my first step uh, would be to um, uh, repeat the endoscopy myself uh, and to perform uh, biopsies uh, of the ulcer. Uh, additionally, um, I, I don't know if he had been, you didn't mention that he had been tested for H. pylori previously. I would test him now and I would send it particularly for culture to ensure that, um, uh, that we don't have a resistant strain of H. pylori if he had been treated and failed. Um, but, uh, my first step would be, uh, the scope with, uh, particular attention to biopsy. Okay. Um, so... Uh, you do your own uh, endoscopy, and you come down. The esophagus is normal. The proximal stomach is uh, normal. There is actually some retained food in the stomach, um, but you're able to wash it clear, and you're able to see that he does have this 
Um, what now looks to be sort of a, a chronic appearing ulcer, and there's a lot of inflammation around it, and um, it's immediately pre-pyloric, and you actually can't get through the pylorus uh, with your standard scope uh, due to uh, stenosis. Okay. Um, so uh, I would uh, take four quadrant biopsies at this time um, of the, uh, you know, the distal stomach, uh, and, and then take some biopsies of the ulcer as well, um, and send them to pathology and send some for, uh, H. pylori testing and culture. So biopsies all show basically inflammatory tissue and fibrotic tissue, no sign of malignancy, uh, and H. pylori testing is negative. Okay, um, so uh, I would uh, bring the patient back uh, to the clinic uh, to uh, discuss the options going forward. Uh, I would send off, I would get a gastrin level as well on this patient. Um, but yeah, I would bring them back to discuss uh, the options. Okay, so serum gastrin is normal. Um, and you bring him back to discuss the options. So what do you discuss? So, um, I mean, I would explain to him uh, that I think uh, he has a, um, a, a distal uh, pyloric stricture from uh, chronic ulcer disease. Uh, and although we biopsied it to ensure that uh, it is not a cancer, uh, it's very difficult to definitively rule that out in this setting. Uh, I think the options for treatment would be an antrectomy versus a, uh, a bypass, but I would uh, advocate for an antrectomy in this setting. Okay, so you take him to the, he agrees, and you take him to the OR. What do you do? So uh, I bring him to the, op I'd send him to the to anesthesia for an evaluation preoperatively. Uh, I would bring him to the operating room, lay him supine on the table with his right arm tucked and left arm out. Uh, I'd make an upper midline laparotomy uh, before placing a Thompson retractor. Um, I would uh, begin by reflecting the greater momentum off of the transverse colon tend to the lesser sac. Um, uh, and I would uh, divide the greater momentum up until up till the uh, up until I reach the um, greater curve of the stomach. I then uh, go into the uh, lesser uh, momentum. Uh, ligate the um, the uh, the right and left gastric uh, arteries, uh, and then um, dissect around the uh, uh, the first part of the duodenum and pick a point of transection. I try and transect the duodenum uh, two centimeters distal to the pylorus, and I do that with uh, a GIA uh, uh, stapler. And then I would uh, uh, dissect proximally. Um, uh, up until around the, um, until I reach sort of the junction of the right and left gastroepipoic, uh, which is Demel's point, which will sort of define the proximal extent of an antrectomy. And then I would divide the stomach with, uh, um, uh, again, with GIA staplers, uh, pass the specimen off the field, and uh, do a Dolroth II reconstruction. Okay, so describe the Dolroth II. So uh, I would um, uh, lift the transverse colon to find the ligament of trites. I would um, uh, measure about 30 centimeters down from the ligament of trites in the small bowel before bringing up a loop uh, anti-colic. Um, uh, and then I would um, just do a uh, essentially a hand-sewn two-layer uh, um, anastomosis 
uh, using the stapled end of the uh, distal end of the stomach uh, to an enterotomy, which I would make. Okay. So uh, you do this, and the patient initially does well, uh, but presents to your clinic again on follow-up about a month later with uh, uh, persistent uh, epigastric pain. Okay. Um, so I would um, sort of start fresh. I'd uh, uh, you know see the patient, do a history and physical, um, try and understand the nature of the epigastric pain, whether... Uh, this is um, sort of chronic post-operative pain or whether he actually got better and it now has a new pain, uh, whether there's any associated symptoms, fevers, um, any difficulty with oral intake, um, lethargy, et cetera. Okay. And then I would do a physical exam focusing on the, uh, the abdominal exam, trying to ensure that he doesn't have peritonitis. So... Um... He initially felt better, and, you know, about two weeks after surgery was actually feeling significantly better. Um, so this has then gotten worse since then. So this, he does not feel this is his post-operative or post-surgical pain. Uh, it feels very similar to him to his previous ulcers. Um, he is not having any food intolerance, and exam is normal. Okay, and he's still on PPIs or not? Uh, he uh, has not been taking PPIs. So um, I would um, start by uh, arranging for an upper endoscopy for this patient. Uh, I would also trial uh, the PPIs again. Uh, and um, um, that's, that's, that's all I would do at this time. Okay. So you start them on PPIs and get them an upper endoscopy. And on upper endoscopy, you see a marginal ulcer at your anastomosis. Okay. Uh, so if we have him on the PPIs. I just make sure that um, he would. I make sure that he is sort of maximally dosed. Um, you know, uh, twice daily, and I would start the sucrophate as well. So, uh, how long do you continue that? Um, well, I'd start, I mean, I, I'd want to ensure that, um, that he has resolution. So, I'd arrange for a repeat scope in um, four to six weeks, and I'd see him back in the clinic at that time. So, he comes back in at four to six weeks, and he's uh, really still having this pain. Um, and the repeat endoscopy shows persistence of his marginal ulceration. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I would just ensure that he's on maximal medical therapy. Uh, I would repeat a... Um, I'm uh, just... Um, just debating. So he, we restarted him on his PPI. Uh, we checked the gastrin previously, which was negative. Um, I think uh, I would uh, proceed with. Uh, so I, I, um, I mean, we could recheck a gastrin just to ensure that it is not elevated. Um, but you have to stop the PPIs before you do that. Uh, and I'm worried about. Um, I'm just worried about retained antrum. We did uh, ensure that we took the uh, 
we took the, uh, you know, we dissected distally on the duodenum to try and take um, the entire antrum, but uh, it is possible. Um, I would also get a CAT scan with oral contrast for this patient just to uh, reassess the anatomy as well. Okay, so I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. Um, so I, I decided to be a little bit meaner on this one um, because you guys were doing so well on the previous uh, previous questions. So I, I think I had mentioned to the last person the danger of sort of skipping ahead without completing an investigation. Um, so I, the... Uh, you never kind of went back in and established what the etiology of this refractory ulcer is uh, yeah, I, before the first operation. Yeah, I meant, well, so, okay, yeah. I meant to ask you uh, what, the, uh, what, the, what the, even what the pathology showed after, after the operation, but right. I had it in my head. I uh, forgot. It's, it's, no, it's fine, and that's why I, I did this actually sort of on purpose. Um, the uh, so I was setting up for a patient who is, was um, probably non-compliant with his PPIs and also taking uh, continuing to take NSAIDs, um, which are two things you you never ask about NSAIDs uh, use, mm -hmm. uh, and you also never confirmed that his gastric pH was normal on PPI therapy, which is something that we will often check for. Um, okay. The two yeah. most common causes for recalcitrant. Uh, peptic ulcers in the modern era are that they're not actually taking their PPIs or that their PPIs are ineffective or that they're continuing to take NSAIDs. Uh, interestingly enough, actually, there are a number of folks who will say that they, and also I don't think you asked about tobacco, and tobacco can certainly have that effect as well. Um, so it's, it's pretty rare in the modern era to need to do any ulcer surgery. Um, and so I think a lot of us sort of forget to go back to first principles and figuring out why is this uh, guy not healing. Right. Um, and then all of those things are things that would also then contribute to formation of a marginal marginal ulceration. Yeah, of course. Uh, so it's I think as a, a general advice, um, if you feel like you're struggling on a question, it's always okay to stop and go back to first principles and say, um, okay, so this is a gentleman who is continuing to have issues. I'd like to go back and, uh, you know, revisit some things. And, and, and so you can correct yourself if you realize you left something out that was important. You say, I realized I forgot I would have gotten this test. Um, so it's okay to, to, if you catch yourself having made a mistake, you can go back. It's better to go back and correct yourself than just to forge ahead. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Wright, for taking the time on this early Sunday morning to um, help us prepare for our oral board exams. Um, I'm sure the Canadian oral boards are going to be... Uh, dominated in two weeks here they did fantastic we really appreciate all of our university of toronto uh colleagues joining us this this early morning so thanks. uh thank, thanks guys and uh good luck on the boards the university of toronto has been a, a big supporter of behind the knife uh from the beginning so we really appreciate you guys and hope to have some more of you guys and your uh, professors on, on the podcast in the near future sounds great until next time dominate the day